It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro. I'm Mark Feinstein, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. When we started this series back in 2017, we welcomed nearly every general manager throughout the game. The interviews began as a featured part of the MLB Newsmakers Podcast. There was so much interest in the interviews, we ended up launching the Executive Access Podcast on its own feed in the spring of 2018. Over the past few weeks, we've released a series of throwback episodes from that first season in 2017, featuring Nationals General Manager Mike Rizzo, Blue Jays President and CEO Mark Shapiro, Yankees GM Brian Cashman, and more. This week, we present my conversation with Sandy Alderson, who is currently a senior advisor for the Oakland Athletics. Alderson has enjoyed a lengthy, impressive career in baseball, most notably guiding the A's to three American League pennants and the 1989 World Series Championship. Alderson went on to run both the San Diego Padres and New York Mets with a stop at the commissioner's office along the way. Alderson, who was the Mets GM at the time of this interview, discussed baseball's analytic revolution, the differences of running teams in large and small markets, and much more. As we wait for baseball to return, I hope you enjoy this 2017 conversation with Sandy Alderson. What was your first job in baseball and how did that come about? First job in baseball was as uh, general counsel of the Oakland A's. Um, started there in uh, November of, or October of 1981. Um, I was a, uh, an associate attorney at a law firm in San Francisco, and one of the partners and his family purchased the Oakland A's from Charlie Finley. And um, I had worked closely with that uh, partner uh, and did a lot of the legal work in connection with uh, the purchase of the team. And about a year later, that was in 1980, and about a year later I went over there full-time. So I think I was the first full-time general counsel in baseball, which shows you how far the game has come. As an attorney, you probably baseball operations probably did not seem to be something no. you thought about as a future. How did that... Well, in those days, the general counsel didn't have a lot to do. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the business was a lot less complex uh, than it is today. And um, so I had the opportunity to travel around, see minor league teams, do various things. But um, the real opportunity came when Billy Martin, who was our manager at the time and who thought he was our general manager, um, was let go, and um, so we hired a new manager, but there was kind of a void there, and um, so I was given that responsibility without any experience or real knowledge uh, of the game or of the position, but kind of grew from there. How overwhelming was that? Didn't feel overwhelming at the time, but uh, because I was working closely with uh, Roy Eisenhardt, who was the president and, and uh the partner. Uh, so we kind of fell our way through it. Um, but uh, I didn't really feel any great pressure because I figured I 
could always go back to being a lawyer if it didn't right. work out. So, <laughs> with a with a background that didn't start in baseball, are there executives from other businesses or other um, areas that that have influenced you in your baseball career through the years? Well, I didn't have any real business experience uh, before joining the A's. I was a lawyer for five years. I've been in the Marine Corps, so I, probably my Marine experience was as informative as anything. Although we certainly didn't run the Oakland A's, uh, like the United States Marines, but um, just, you know, basic leadership principles and organization and discipline and uh, um, it certainly helped to, you know, have, a, have had a working relationship with, uh, with Roy for the previous five years at the law firm. So, um, uh, I think that um, these jobs are as much about judgment as about scouting ability or um, you know understanding of analytics, um, because the real key is figuring out a way to put all that together and make a reasonable decision. Um, so even though in those days I didn't have any experience and <laughs> very little knowledge, um, you know I think Roy and Wally Haas, who was there, also. Uh, confidence in my judgment, but that was kind of it. <laughs> right. so. uh, during your time in Oakland, you guys were very successful, made the three straight World Series, one in 89. Mm -hmm. How has the job changed most from that time in Oakland to your time here in New York? Well, the stakes are a lot higher because the money is a lot greater and, um, <clears throat> you know, um, the margin for error can be smaller. Um, you know, a mistake in those days cost you a few hundred thousand. A uh, mistake these days costs you a few million. Um, and those those mistakes can add up. Uh, and this is, you know, this is a uh, this is a business where mistakes can be made. I mean, it's players make it, players don't. Players perform, players don't. Um, there. The outcome is not always within your control. Um, so what we try to do is focus on the day-to-day -day process um, and hope that we're increasing the chances of success by being systematic and organized and process-oriented. Uh, sabermetrics analytics have become obviously a huge mm -hmm. influence in the game over the past 10, 15, 20 mm -hmm. years. Yeah. You were there sort of at the beginning of it right. uh, with Billy and, you know, I know Moneyball, everybody points to that, but you guys were doing it, you know, before then. My question was, I guess, how did you first discover some of these analytics and what, what gave you the belief that they were so important? Well, it goes back to my inexperience uh, at the outset of my baseball career. Uh, because I wasn't a scout, I didn't really have a way of evaluating players, a traditional way of evaluating players, um, I was pretty open to alternatives that were maybe more accessible to me. Um, and that's where analytics came in. The, uh, actually what got me started was listening to a radio piece on National Public Radio by someone who was local in the Bay Area who uh, had written a book, a small book, uh, called the Sinister First Baseman. His name was Eric Walker. 
And this was about the time that uh, Bill James was writing as well. Um, so I was intrigued by it. It seemed to be that some of these, um, the, the, you know, the thesis, the importance of on-base percentage and things like that, um, seemed to be borne out mathematically. And, and also was consistent with my sort of um, kind of parochial view of baseball, which is, hey, I love, I love home runs anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't, uh, right? Yeah, so, um, I mean, I recall the, the you know, the uh, uh, advocate for the three-run homer was um, Manager for the Orioles, um, Earl Weaver. Earl Weaver, and the advocate for small ball was Gene Mock, who played, you know, managed Philadelphia and everything. So, anyway, um, the Weaver approach appealed to me emotionally, or as a fan. Right. But it, you know, the analytics seemed to prove out, and that was that was probably when that started. That was probably 1982, 83. You've talked about the importance of analytics and the importance of scouting. Do mm -hmm. you think league-wide scouting has become less important to teams than it has in the past, or do you just think maybe it's as important, but analytics have caught up to be? It's a good question. I mean, you know, you look at the the general managers who've been appointed over the last few years. It would seem that analytics has surpassed subjective scouting because those who are in decision-making positions uh, have more of an analytical background. Um, I think at the same time, though, there's a growing recognition that um, the numbers themselves don't tell the whole, whole story. Um, and by the way, analytics are themselves subjective in many ways, because what analytics really do is collate data and then interpret the data. And when you interpret the data, you inject your own subjective point of view because right. <clears throat> you have to weigh things. So all data isn't equal. And so different clubs, the same same as different clubs have different views of how that data ought to be used. Um, so <clears throat> um, nothing is ever totally subjective or totally objective. Um, but sometimes we don't admit, admit that to ourselves. So. Um, and the difficult thing is is melding the two into something uh, a coherent uh, approach that that uh, incorporates both. Uh, Paul DePodesta worked for you, I believe, in San mm -hmm. Diego and New York. Yeah, he's been the chief strategy officer for the Cleveland Browns mm -hmm. now for the past fourteen months. Do you think this could become a trend in the future, where executives from one sport move to another? I or do you think he's a unique? No, case? I think it could be because I think that. Um, that the analytics are agnostic with respect to sport. Now, that doesn't mean that you can move sort of seamlessly from one to the other and, and not recognize that there are going to be shortcomings. And the fact that Paul was in baseball for as many years as he was means that he wasn't in football for as many years as he was. But sometimes, as I said, with respect to how I got involved with analytics, being unencumbered by you know conventional wisdom and and uh, uh, 
years of experience can actually be a liberating thing and lead to the kinds of breakthroughs that um, can occur. So uh, I definitely think that this could be, because the the common thread is the common thread is the uh, analysis and uh, a way of approaching decision making. It's not you know the uniform or the playing rules or right. I mean, fundamentally. Uh, MLB StatCast has introduced some new metrics mm -hmm. into the baseball world in the past couple of years. Yeah. How do you view those, and do you think the fact that they're so available to fans has changed the way fans look at the game a little bit? Well, I think their availability has definitely changed uh, the way some fans look at the game. I think it's also changed the way some teams look at the game. And I think the fact that they are available to fans generally, but also to the more analytically minded fans. I mean, it's like for public access software or whatever they call that. Um, um, you see some very interesting analysis coming out of um, you know publicly available um, sources. Which gets back to a point that somebody made a few weeks ago in an article that I read, um, that there's a very short half-life for new ideas. That the competitive balance, that the competitive advantage that one gets from recognizing a new idea is <coughs> very short. <coughs> because all this information is so available in the public domain, um, there are people out there who are as smart as we are or smarter, um, you know, come to the same conclusions based on that availability of information. Tony LaRusso is widely credited for creating the so-called one-inning closer yeah. with Eckersley uh -huh. during your tenure in yeah. Oakland. Having watched the way teams used their bullpen last October, uh, do you sense any shift in the way managers are going to use their relievers going forward, or do you think that that's a specific situation where it's a shortened time period, you have off days built in, and, and you can really only do something like that in the postseason? I think it's tougher to do in the regular season. Um, you might see it bleed over into the last few weeks of a season. Um, uh, but I think the importance of what happened in the World Series is that it did cause people to think differently about how um, relief pitching is used. And so while we might not see a duplication of what happened in, in the World Series, I think you might see some innovation. Um, uh, and I think you saw some of that in the regular season. I'm thinking about uh, you know, Cleveland using Andrew Miller earlier in the game. So I think that, and those ideas have been around a while, um, but I think once you have someone um, successfully employ um, you know, a new idea, um, even if it's a small variation, people will tend to copy it. You worked for MLB in between GM stints, uh -huh. most recently 2010, when you worked on addressing a lot of the issues in the Dominican yeah. regarding age falsification, the use of PEDs. Mm -hmm. Do you believe those issues have become less prevalent there than they were five or ten years ago? Uh, yes, I do. And I think that uh, uh, that's in large part to the to the uh, proactivity of Major League Baseball over the last few years. I'm, I'm not going back to 2010, but it, just in my experience here with the Mets, um, 
their proactivity with respect to um, prospects unsigned by major league clubs, doing drug testing earlier uh, at a period when those players are unsigned, doing background checks um, to confirm identity before those players are signed, um, I think has eliminated some of those problems and created more of a level playing field for for those players in the Dominican or Venezuela who are competing for those contracts and those dollars and those opportunities. So, uh, yeah, no, I do think, you know, no system is ever going to be perfect, but I do think that uh, they've made big, big gains. And by the way, some aspects of the system in, in, in Dominican and Venezuela are important to preserve. Um, you know, the whole issue of Buscones and the, the, those who, um, you know, train young young uh, prospects, they're an important part of the player pipeline. We just have to make sure that that part of the pipeline is um, well, is, is overseen because, um, um, in fact, I think there are aspects of that system that we need to import back to the United States. Um, uh, with respect, and in, in the case of travel teams and things of that sort for youth players, where you know there's a little more regulation uh, about how players are used and those kinds of things. Having run teams in Oakland and San Diego, what are the biggest differences between doing so in those markets and in New York? Um, Well, the similarities between Oakland and New York stop at the, fa at, at the fact that they're both two-team markets. Uh, but, um, you know, the media coverage, the, the, uh, the fan bases are very different. The fan base in New York is large, knowledgeable, and um, demanding in some ways, but surprisingly patient in our case, uh, you know, for the first few years that I was here. Um, fan bases in San Diego and, and Oakland are not as large. There are smaller cadres of really enthusiastic uh, fans. Uh, the media requirements are a little bit different. But, you know, they're major league cities, and, um, you know, putting a good team on the field is ultimately the goal. And uh, so just, just that fact, uh, you know, creates pressure to... Uh, um, to, to try to be competitive. And uh, oddly enough, I probably, uh, you know, my relationship with the media in Oakland was, I think, very good over the time I was there. My relationship with the media in San Diego was not very good. I learned from that, and I think so. I, I tried to put it into use in New York. So, um, you know, they're different environments, uh, but. Uh, similar demands. So. In the September 2011 interview with Newsday, you said of your first year as the Mets GM, quote, in building a team for the long haul, my goal this season was to try to change the perception of where it's headed. Safe to say that's happened, but when do you think that turned? Um, it's funny. I think that uh, it, it took some time. First of all, um, You have to be able to articulate a strategy, and then you have to be able to stick to it. Um, 
but eventually um, that kind of strategy or idea is um, punctuated by certain events. And as I go back, I think the uh, I think like several events, but uh, one of them was probably um, the trade for uh, Zach Wheeler that we made. Um, we signed David Wright. Um, you know, we made the trade. We traded R.A. Dickey for some play. There are these seminal events that take place that kind of uh, define the, the, a strategy or idea. So, I mean, they come up from time to time, but when you connect them together, they, they create an impression. But I think the key thing for us was, um, there's no question, for the first four and a half years that I was here, we were selling an idea, you know, that this is the direction we were taking, this is how we were going to do it. And uh, as I said, I think Mets fans were very patient, but I think they did buy into um, where we were headed. And part of the part of the process of buying in was the fact that, that fans today know so much more about farm systems than they did before. And so there was a belief in, you know, what was happening over here in the farm system, even though things weren't going particularly well at the major league level, but because fans um, sort of knowledge of their team is, is greater today than it was probably 20 or 30 years ago, uh, it allowed the fans to uh, kind of embrace the whole strategy and not ignore what was going on at the major league level, but at least recognize that was maybe a necessary phase. For people who haven't had the pleasure of attending the Baseball Writers' Dinner the past few years, I can attest that you're a funny guy. <laughs> Do you need to have a sense of humor to succeed in this kind of job? I think it helps. I think it takes the edge off of things. I think if you can respond with a little humor, it takes the edge off of the uh, um, difficulties that you know sometimes teams face individual's face. I think that uh, if you can soften that with some humor. Uh, you have to be careful though because humor usually well, can't often be very pointed and you got to be careful about um, how pointed your humor becomes. <laughs> so, <laughs> You guided the A's three straight pennants. How much more difficult is mm -hmm. that to accomplish the way the game is structured today? Yeah, no, it's, you know, there, there are more steps involved. Uh, and as a result, I think there's a little more randomness in what happens in a one-game playoff, in a five-game playoff, and then a, you know, there are just several more steps. Uh, back in those days, um, there were there was a league championship series. There were two divisions, two winners, and then you go to the World Series. So um, it's a multi-step process now, which makes it, I think, more difficult. People often talk about whether New York's a Yankees town or a Mets town. Do you care about that, or is that just something for talk radio to talk about? And have you seen the city sway a little more no, I, in the last couple of years? No, I, I find that important. I mean, um, you know, I kind of view the Yankee-Mets thing the way I view the, viewed the Giants-A's thing. Um, and, you know, in San Francisco, in, in the Bay Area, 
the default team was always going to be the Giants because they were there first, primarily. And, um, you know, it's San Francisco and not, um, you know, the East Bay. Uh, but as long as the team played well, as long as Oakland played well, and depending on what, you know, the Giants were doing, um, we, could be, we could be the predominant team, and we were for quite a few years. Um, but the Giants were always going to be the default team. Uh, I kind of view it the same way in New York. Uh, we got to play well for a long time to change the default. Um, but that's part of our mission. <laughs> so, uh, and I do think things have shifted a little bit. Um, but again, you know how permanent it is. <laughs> I think it's all a function of. There, there, you know, there are core fans on both sides, but um, you know, you're talking about overcoming family biases as much as anything. You know, my father was this, my father was that, his grandfather was this, his grandfather was that, and so when I say, you know, a team that's been around for a hundred years versus a team that's been around for, you know, fifty-five, that's kind of what happens. Which was more satisfying for you, getting to your first World Series in '88 with the A's, or getting there in 2015? Yeah, I'd have to say 2015 because um, I was kind of a neophyte in '88, and it was like, wow. And then all of our young players said, "Well, but, you know, we lost in '88. We're going to be back here again." I, I didn't have any reason to think otherwise either, but it's a very hard thing to do. You know what transpired at the at the trade deadline, the fact that we were behind and we played so well, and um, you know, it was an exciting uh, final two months of the season. Then it was a it was an exciting series with the Dodgers, and then I mean the whole thing was you know we kind of came not out of nowhere, but uh, it all came together in ways that it doesn't usually. So it was. Was satisfying, I think, to a lot of people. And again, the fact that it had been four or five years and we've been working toward this, um, and at the very end, things kind of accelerated in a positive way. So that was very satisfying. We hope you enjoyed our latest throwback episode of Executive Access. Next week, we'll feature three current executives from the NL West Farhan Zaidi of the Giants, AJ Preller of the Padres, and Jeff Breidich of the Rockies. Coming up in future weeks, we'll be back with more than a dozen all-new episodes, including sit-downs with Phillies assistant GM Ned Rice, Pirates president Travis Williams, and more. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about executive access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinsand. Stay safe, everybody. Okay. 
Picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey. 